Right, this morning we're in Mark 12, 38 through 44. Mark 12, 38 through 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and light greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd be with us this morning while we worship you. I pray that our worship would glorify you. I pray that we would treasure your scripture and your word above all earthly things. And that we would hold it close to our hearts and use it as our guiding post, both to salvation and our conduct. I pray that you'd be with Dan and his work come to fruition as he uh, preaches the word to us. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're at the end here of Jesus' time in the temple. He arrives in chapter 11, uh, just a couple days earlier, the beginning of Passover week, into Jerusalem, makes his way right into the temple, returns to the temple the next day, and really the, all of these conversations, these confrontations now that have been taking place over these last couple chapters have taken place in the temple. We've seen time and time again as the Sanhedrin have sent the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes. They keep sending people to Jesus, trying to trap him, asking him questions. And Jesus each time amazes them with his authority and wisdom. And for the church, I trust it has been, it's been for me, very instructive to hear Jesus' responses or the questions that he asks back and to to be instructed in the church of how to think about the kingdom, how to think about our lives as Christians. You know, these have not been, you know, uh, dinner party light conversation topics over the last several weeks as Jesus speaks on hell, and he speaks on divorce and remarriage, then he speaks on hypocrisy, and then he speaks on politics, now he'll speak on money. These are not just your light-hearted conversations. And in all seriousness, though, it is one of the, the joys and benefits of expository preaching to take a book and to work through it is that it's sort of built-in courage for the pastor, that there's not topics that you skip. You come to it, and thus saith the Lord, you declare it. And it also protects the pastor from just cherry-picking here and there a verse that they sort of want to major on. Instead, as we work through it, the Lord confronts us. The Lord encourages us in many different areas. And so we stop and we look at it. He'll finish up his conversation here. The, the religious leaders are finally done asking him questions, but he has a couple comments and words he wants to make. Chapter 13 will lead us to what we call the Olivet Discourse. And we'll see some things there in chapter 13, then 14 to the end of the chapter, the final events of the passion of Jesus Christ. 
As you heard Jim read for you just a moment ago, what we have are two short uh, stories here, two short events that are put side by side. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's not one I'm going to have to dig deeply into, and yet my prayer is that the simplicity of it will confront us, will challenge and encourage us, as we see a stark contrast between religious pretense and humble faith. Religious pretense and humble faith. Jesus gives a warning here against the scribes. He warns the people of the scribes to watch out for their pride, to watch out for their self-promotion as teachers and leaders. They have taken their position of honor, their position of influence, their position of authority, and they are using it for self-promotion. They are misusing it and abusing those among them. The weakest, most dependent among them, they are abusing them instead of ministering and serving to them. And so he turns his attention to the congregation and he says, beware, beware of these scribes. And he paints for us a picture. He gives us really six things that they're doing. And we quickly can pick up on what that picture is. First, he says they love to walk around in long robes. The scribes, the, the religious leaders would have worn long white robes or what would be known as a prayer shawl. They would have had tassels along the bottom. They are made of kind of the premium material of the day. They would have stuck out as nice-looking clothes, sort of like someone who comes up in a a tailored suit or a really nice new dress. They kind of stick out. So it distinguished the scribes and the scholars as men of importance. And it says here that they love just to walk about in those long robes. They liked to make a show of it. They wanted everyone to know just how important and preeminent they really were. They loved the attention that it brought them. I worked at Starbucks for a few years, many years ago, um, and we often joke that these young doctors would come in often, and it looked like they would put on their white doctor's coat and stethoscope just to come into Starbucks. Like the rest of their you know, clothes looked like they just were coming from home, but they wanted everyone to know when they came in, hey, I'm a big deal, get my coffee in a hurry. We joked about that, but it's that idea of they're putting on a show. They want people to notice them. It says, secondly, they love greetings in the marketplace. It was customary among the Jews to, to give an, an honorable greeting to someone of importance, to a scholar or a scribe, to stand when they came into your presence and these religious leaders just loved it, so they would go for a stroll just for the attention, just for people to recognize them and stand up and honor them. It says they loved the best seats in the synagogue. The synagogue, most people would be standing, sitting on the, the floors around, but along the edges there would be benches that lined the edges, and that is where the priests, if they wanted to, other people would get up and get out of their way so that they could sit down there. And so the religious leaders loved to take advantage of that, to show their importance as people scrambled out of the seat and they could sit somewhere in prominence. So they loved the places of honor at the banquet. They want to be at the head table. You know, they're not showing up and going to table 14 with all the misfits. They, they want to be the table up front where the best wine is served, the choicest cuts of meat are served, and they get served first. 
then it turns even uglier. We see this sort of self-promotion. This, they love the attention they get, the honor that is given to them. But then it turns uglier when it says that they devour old widows. What we see here is that they're taking advantage of the most vulnerable, the most dependent, and, and most easily exploited people in their congregation. The, the widows, those who would, would quickly take the advice of these religious leaders, be influenced by them, and they would go into their, their homes and they would get these widows to turn over most of their belongings to the church. Something called Corbin, where you could say Corbin, it basically meant, okay, this, I have my, uh, what I need to live on, but anything beyond that belongs to the church. And so that when you would die, everything would go to the synagogue or to these religious leaders. And these women, these older widows, people they're supposed to be caring for, the vulnerable, instead they are misleading them, taking advantage of them. And then finally it says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. That is, they disguise their hypocrisy with long, drawn-out prayers in public, meant to impress with a flourish of language and and deep theology and just the the incredible length which, which they prayed. I don't know how that impressive that would be nowadays. Long prayers might wear people out, but instead of honoring God with their prayers, instead of using it in a worshipful manner, instead of encouraging and instructing the congregation in prayer, instead of using it as a rule in their ministry of, of, of word and prayer, they're using it again to promote themselves, to impress. They want to be seen by men. I recently read a uh, biography of Calvin Coolidge and there's a spot in there where it talks about he was Warren Harding's vice president for a little bit and Warren Harding running for presidency making his campaign speeches in the 1920s the the person who was running against Warren Harding had just the best burn he goes talks about Harding's speeches and he says it's an army of pompous phrases moving over the landscape in search of an idea. <laughs> that a good burn. Maybe sometimes you feel like <laughs> sermons are that. Like, man, he's, he's going to find an idea eventually. That seems to be, though, draws to mind that idea of the Pharisees just up there beloviating, talking, and, and saying the most impressive things that they can say, trying to impress people with their piety. I think the applications are quite simple. You know, one, I would speak to myself, I'd speak to the session, I'd speak to anyone who finds themselves in a position of teaching or leadership, whether it's in the church or outside the church, is the Lord holds you to a high account. If you look at the end of verse 40 as it talks about these scribes and what they do, the last little phrase says they will receive a greater condemnation. The Lord holds to a high account those who teach, those who preach, those who have authority in the way that they exercise that authority. Often at Redeemer, we say this, it's our goal. I'm sure we don't 
do it perfectly by any means, but it's our goal. When people ask about Redeemer, we'll say, well, we don't, we try not to take ourselves too seriously, but we want to take very seriously what God has called us to do. That is ministry of the word, liturgy, sacrament, fellowship, those things. We want to take that extremely seriously. It's a high calling. Without taking ourselves too seriously, as if we are some elite group of people who have joined here with some secret knowledge no one else has. Jesus has driven this home throughout Mark to this point when he's talked about greatness in the kingdom and what that looks like. It is to be a servant of all, especially to the least of these whether it's children, whether it's those young in the faith, whether it's the vulnerable, but to be a servant to all, that's kingdom greatness. He's warned those who teach the children or teach those who are young in the faith. He says it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea than to lead astray by your word or conduct. Those who are vulnerable, those who are young, here that's exactly what these leaders are doing. James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that he, that we who teach will be judged with great strictness. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There is a higher accountability, a greater condemnation For those who are given authority, those who are given a platform for teaching, a position of honor, and use it for their own self-promotion or the abuse of those underneath of them, their condemnation will be great. So where you enjoy those roles in your life, take it seriously. Don't take yourself so seriously like you're really something special. But take seriously the opportunity that God has given you not to have a bunch of servants, but as Jesus Christ, to be a servant to all, even the least of these. And then second application is just generally to all of us to guard against hypocrisy. To guard against hypocrisy. Every time I speak about hypocrisy, I give the same warning. I want us to be slow to accuse people of hypocrisy and even slow to allow people to accuse us of it. Hypocrisy does not mean that I would believe and I would teach and I would instruct and I would sing about the honor of our God and loving him with all of our hearts and then I would struggle to do that. That's called being a human, being a sinner, which we all are. Sin in our lives does not make us hypocrites. Temptation that we struggle with and sometimes don't get victory over, that doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. A hypocrite is when you're pretending to be something you're not. When you're putting on a show, when you're play acting, when you come in and walk through the motions knowing, I want people to be impressed with how I'm walking through my worship today. But you know your heart is far from God. He has no priority in your life. It is not hypocrisy to wake up and feel like, I don't really feel like going to church, but you still come. And to be singing and only sort of be half engaged. The the Lord calls us to do that, to, to work through that in our lives. That we would pray until we're praying, that we'd worship until we're worshiped, that we become those things. It's a lie of Satan 
that would say, until you really, 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 really mean it, don't engage. That's not hypocrisy, but hypocrisy is, is what we see here, that putting on a show, trying to look pietistic to get the praise of others when you know your heart is far from the Lord. So he gives this warning of the scribes, and then he moves on to the widow's offering. Jesus moves over to where the treasury, the treasury is in the temple, and it seems like he starts to do some people watching. If you remember, the temple is a massive complex. Most of what we have seen in the temple so far has taken place in what they call the Court of the Gentiles. It's the largest area of the, the temple. Just the Court of the Gentiles itself would be some 35 acres. So a massive, massive area. There's another area called the Court of the Women, where women were free to be and do their thing. And within the Court of the Women, they had the treasury. The treasury would be kind of like its own little building inside of that court. And that building would be safeguarded where the public couldn't just get into it. And in the treasury would be 13 large brass treasure chests. And one for each of the different types of offerings and temple taxes and things that people were to bring in. And so that little building is in the courtyard inside of the treasure chest, but on the outside of the wall facing the courtyard, we're extending 13 trumpet-like objects, maybe like a tuba with a, a big opening on the end and then narrowing down. And what people would do is they come and they would bring their coins, they would bring their offerings, and they would drop it or pour it into that large mouth of this trumpet-like object. And then it would travel down through the more narrower neck, which went through the wall into the treasure chest that people couldn't get to. And so it narrowed like that so people's hands could not fit down <laughs> into the treasure chest. They're all made of copper. And so when you would come and leave, it was a noisy, a big thing when you came and, and brought your offerings. And it's jangling down this big trumpet-like object into the treasure chest and he's sitting there Jesus is sitting there in the courtyard watching people bring their treasure bring their offerings and you get the idea that the the wealthier people are bringing larger offerings and whether they're making a show of it or not we can maybe read into it a little that it does seem to be a, a bit of a uh event that they're making it all the noise and a big offering and hey this is a big deal see what's going on here and so they bring their offerings in this way it seems from the text that these wealthy folks it's offerings that yes a much larger amount than the lady is given but also an amount that they're hardly going to notice as they give out of their wealth not a sacrificial gift in any way and then the lord sees this widow, poor widow coming with a very small gift, an amount so little that if you walked past it on the sidewalk, you probably wouldn't take the effort to bend down and pick it up. Again, you can picture it. She probably is doing it quietly, not wanting to draw much attention to herself as she drops two little coins of little value but when the Lord sees it, he immediately 
you can almost see the excitement. He calls the disciples to him, come in. This is going to be my final word to you while I'm in the temple. And I want to drive this home to you. The difference between the religious pretense of the scribes, the wealthy, and the humble faith of this lady. And you see what Jesus says there in verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Maybe he got some puzzled looks from his disciples, so he continues, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This is the point Jesus is going to drive home. This is the great commandment that we looked at last week. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your strength and all your soul and all your mind. Everything that you have centered upon the Lord. All your motives driven by him. Not just keeping him over here as a little sliver in your life. Not spending all your energy and all your your, your best talents and times on everything else. And what's ever left over I'll give a little bit to Jesus. But no, centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure why the translation made the choice they did, but the the last little phrase of this chapter, in the ESV, which I'm reading from, it says uh, that she put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The actual translation would read this way, she put in everything she had, her whole life. It, It drives the point home a little more. It recalls back to mind even the beginning of Mark where Jesus called his early disciples and he says, leave all that you have, forsake everything and follow after me. If you want to be great, then be a servant of all. You want to live, then die. You want to be first, then be last. It's this counterintuitive idea of the kingdom and what honors the Lord. And it's about discipleship that counts the cost and follows him with complete abandonment. To love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. So three observations. We'll be done with this section. Three observations. First is just a general observation that part of our stewardship includes giving to the house of the Lord. Exodus 25, 1 through 8, Deuteronomy chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, other places, are are commanded to give, to give to the house of the Lord, for the upkeep of the house of the Lord, for the care of its ministers, for the care of the widow and the orphan and the disadvantaged. Part of the life of of the church, of God's people, has been stewardship and giving. And so it's not a sermon, I'm not going to go off on your giving here, but Redeemer, we want to keep giving in front of you. Not harp on it all the time, not worry who's giving what, but as part of your life in the body, your life before Christ is that you are good stewards. And that giving is part of of that life in the body. Secondly, second observation 
is that the kingdom, or the king, really has its own value system. Its own value system. That is, it's less concerned about the amount you give and how you give. Less concerned about the amount you give, but how you give. This lady gave quietly. She gave to the Lord. She gave sacrificially. It was her life. These others, they gave a large amount. It's, again, it's not like a big amount is a bad thing to give. But they gave out of their abundance. It gives the idea of it, there wasn't something sacrificial about it. It wasn't the first fruits. It wasn't something, it was just something that they were hardly going to notice. And so we see the kingdom values things differently. It's measured by stewardship. It's measured really by the heart, by sacrifice, by giving unto God and not unto man. Listen to Matthew chapter 6. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Can I just encourage you even, I know I make social media applications sometimes, and maybe they're annoying, but don't make social media your platform your trumpet, as this verse would say, to declare your godliness and piety and generosity to everybody else. Social media is not secret. <laughs> I, I, j- just a reminder. That's real life on there, too, when, when you see it. Well, it's not real life, it's pretend, but people do see it. It counts. but that our giving would not be meant before man, but before God. That it would be marked, again, not by amount, but by generosity, by sacrifice, by a heart that is obedient to God. So Jesus wants to call his disciples over and say, look at this. This is what marks a child of God. It's not this religious pretense. It is humble faith. It is someone who gives their whole life, however humble that may be. Then the third observation is the example of the king. The example of the king. She gave her whole life. Jesus Christ is about ready to give his whole life. He loved the Father. He was wholly committed to the plan of the Father. He took on flesh. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He became a servant of all. He gave his whole life. Think of Philippians 4.2. He didn't count equality, or Philippians 2, I'm sorry. He didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited, to be held on to but willingly, joyfully gave it up to the cross for our salvation. 
And it wasn't like Jesus was poor. (laughs) The only begotten of the Father, the eternally begotten of the Father, enjoying the glories of heaven, would humble himself and come as a lowly servant, would give his whole life for you and for me. Seems like the widow grasped a little bit of that. And it was no big thing for her to give her whole life back to her king. As we move through Mark, we'll see leading to Jesus and his laying down of his life. And might we be reminded, as he laid down his life, we are called to lay down our life for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these some ways just simple comments easy observations and yet Lord a great encouragement as they point us to Jesus Christ the fulfillment of all things the one who would lay down his whole life but also might it encourage each of us Lord that we would guard against what easily can creep into our hearts of pride and self promotion but our life of faith would be lived humbly before you for the sake of others. Lord, not as hypocrites putting on a show, Lord, but but hearts that indeed are set up on you. Or might you work that and grow that in our hearts by your spirit. Give you just a moment there as you think through the text and then we'll respond in song together.